Hi, I'm Karen Elliott, and you're listening to the District B-Sides Podcast, where you'll hear in-depth conversations with council, staff, and community members to take you behind the decisions that are being made on topics that matter to Squamish. Now let's tune in and join the conversation. Welcome to the District B-Sides Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gunn, and you're listening to part three of a series that explores the relationship between density and livability and how an increased housing supply can create affordability, equity, and connectivity in our community. Today, I'm joined by District of Squamish Mayor Karen Elliott to discuss some of the perceptions we hear about density in our community. Let's get to the conversation. Let's begin by discussing some of the things we've heard so far in this podcast series. Sarah Ellis, uh, City of Vancouver Housing Planner, was our first guest. What are some of the takeaways that you got from Sarah Ellis's conversation? Well, I think one of the the big takeaways for me was that she actually represents a voice that we often don't hear from very often when we get into public hearings around density or or that sort of thing. You know, the the idea that there's benefits to adding density to a community. And also uh, what I loved about her discussion was this idea of what we risk losing if we don't introduce different forms of housing and cater to um, a wide variety of needs in the community across all stages of life. Um, and, and maybe you picked up on this too, was uh, this idea of, of potentially losing a sense of neighborhood um, in, in her comments about um, things disappearing from neighbors, neighborhoods when you don't have a diversity of housing or the, the right level of density. Absolutely. And, and I, I think one of the things that I took away related to that um, was that uh, there is change happening. I think often people feel like uh, they like where they live, they want to maintain the character and have things stay as they are. And I think what she pointed out was that um, from her kind of experience in city, yeah, the city of Vancouver and seeing how Vancouver has changed, that um, because there's so much demand for housing, the prices are being pushed up really quickly. And so that actually creates a whole series of changes. And so this idea that we can hold your, your neighborhood as it is, isn't really real. The, the, the price escalation changes the dynamic and the character, and that can lead to a loss of diversity, a, a loss of um, ability for families to move in, to, can, re- can really change the neighborhood. And, um, and, and I think what she gave me was the sense that th- you have to take action to try and address some of those challenges or, or address that changing nature from price in- increases. And that adding density can help address some of that by creating spaces that a variety of people can live in. Yeah, and I think she's right. Um, and so I know um, for a lot of people, the word density is a scary word or that it looks like high-rise buildings or condos. Um, and I think hopefully through this podcast series and through our conversation today, people are understanding that the density means a number of different things. But, but to me, at the heart of it is that people can choose which neighborhood they want to live in at any stage of their life. And so there's a diversity of housing forms that are present in each of our major neighborhoods that you, you know, you might need when you first graduate from post-secondary or you just got married uh, or now you've started a family or now you're retired and your kids have left home, but you, you don't want to leave the neighborhood that you've, you've lived in for 20 years. So how do we accomplish that? And, and I think that was really important part of what Sarah had to say. Absolutely. And I think her perspective from the city of Vancouver was great to, to bring here. And the fact that she was just coming to, to Squamish and a new resident was it, it was a great uh, conversation. I, I found that was really helpful. Um, the second uh, conversation we had in, in the podcast series was with Bronson Boulevant, um, BC Transit Planner. Um, some of the elements of his conversation that really struck me were uh, about the key elements that were really necessary to make transit successful in a community. Um, he specifically talked, to, uh, talked about uh, how a, a population of 3,500 people or jobs per square kilometer within 400 meters of transit stops along a core transit network would allow that transit network to be operated at a, a 15 minute frequency. And from a transit perspective, that 15 minute frequency was really important 
to make transit appealing to use because it was reliable. People would know that if they walked out to a, a transit stop, they wouldn't be waiting for 45 minutes, that it was, they could just go out there and eventually it would come within a time frame that was acceptable. And uh, so that I think that idea that transit, which ties into a bunch of our official community plan goals that we want to have uh, options that are, aren't just single occupant vehicles, um, the fact that uh, density can support that uh, and make that more viable, more appealing um, was a really big takeaway for me from that conversation and something that, um, you know, we, we've been thinking about and, and trying to work towards to have that successful uh, um, transit system and, and the relationship to density is really key to that. And, and this is really interesting. And, and I also sit on the board of BC Transit. So now I'm hearing about transit systems all over the province, uh, not just our own. Um, but but I think oftentimes people don't make that connection between a useful, reliable, convenient transit system and the number of people that live in close proximity to those routes. And, and I hope that's something that our community um, can really start to understand and embody. I think when you ask people why they don't take the bus, um, it's because it's not convenient. And if you're like me and live in kind of this just-in-time calendar shuffle where I'm always sort of rushing from to get to work, to get to kids, to get back home, um, if I'm going to take transit, I have to know that it'll come. And if I miss a bus, and hopefully you don't because we have the Next Ride app and you can see exactly where the bus is on the route, but if I do, you know, that 15 minutes isn't that far away but to get there I need more people living along that bus route because people also say to me please keep my taxes low which means I need more taxpayers within 400 meters of stops along that route so that I can afford to provide to this community 50-minute transit service and I don't think that relationship is as often front of mind for people um, it costs a lot to run buses uh, all day long at 15-minute intervals so if we put, you know, a little bit more density around our core transit network in a way that that fits with each neighborhood, I think we can achieve some not only neighborhood and community building goals, but also better transit and and better results for our community climate action plan. Absolutely. Um, okay, I, I'd like to shift now from the kind of the conversations we've had in the podcast series to conversations and, and discussions that we hear around town. And there's been a few um, different pieces that, that are informing this. Um, you know, it, the, we have, uh, you know, the, the 2020 zoning bylaw update, there's been some projects there as we're implementing our 2040 official community plan. We've had a couple mayor's drop-ins uh, focused on single family neighborhoods. Uh, and then there's been the ongoing discussion over a number of years around development that's occurring in our community. And in these conversations, we, we hear a bunch of different opinions and concerns uh, kind of over and over again around density. Um, and I, I think it'd be worth taking a bit of time uh, to unpack a few of those. Um, the first one I want to start with is infrastructure. One of the things that we hear often is that there's a concern that our infrastructure can't handle the increased density um, or that the higher density associated with multifamily in some of our existing neighborhoods would be too expensive to maintain. Um, what's your perception on the relationship between density and servicing infrastructure? Yeah, this is a, this is, you're right, Matt, this is something that comes up, we hear it um, sometimes at public hearings or in emails that people send to us. Uh, so, I mean, one of the key things to keep in mind um, for folks is that we have master plans for pretty much every piece of infrastructure that is under the ground um, at the district, whether it's water, sewer, wastewater, stormwater. Um, we have a plan and we have a plan for how it grows with our community. So, so that part to me is taken care of. We understand what it's gonna take um, uh, in, from an infrastructure perspective to get to the 2040. Um, where I think the disconnect happens is people not understanding who pays for what when. So when someone comes along and rezones uh, a piece of property for a larger development, they, they do pay um, development cost charges, which go to support our, our growth projects for roads and water and sewer. Um, and they're also 
often responsible for upgrading the infrastructure along their, their road frontage um, to meet the demands of, of their development. Um, but, you know, I know we get questions about, about this sort of thing, and, and maybe you can shed some light on how our engineers look at it because you work really closely with them. So to me, higher density means that we can actually keep taxes lower and better sustain our infrastructure. But maybe you can talk about it from the planners and engineers perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I So in, uh, in the work that we completed on the official community plan, one of the things that we wanted to look at was um, the, the kind of pieces of information we'd look at during sub-area planning or neighborhood planning. If we're looking at a neighborhood, how do we envision what the best outcome is of this area over time? And one of the, one of the variables in our minds was how do we keep the, the servicing costs as low as possible, the, the ongoing costs that will drive taxes. And, and in my mind, one of the, one of the pieces there is um, what are the number of taxpayers to the servicing infrastructure in the ground? What's that ratio that would be ideal? And so I wanted to go to engineering and say, hey, can you guys give us a way to understand the, the optimal density in a community to keep our taxes low? Um, thinking that there might be this break-even point where, or this breaking point where all of a sudden, if you had this target density, if you had that number of people in a neighborhood, you'd get the lowest prices for infrastructure over time. But the interesting thing was when I approached um, our, our manager of infrastructure, David Rolston, about those target densities and how we might be able to determine them, he actually said that, you know, really, it's not that there is a target density the more density you have on an existing piece of infrastructure, the lower the per person costs. Um, when they, the, the big cost to us in managing infrastructure over the long term is replacement of infrastructure. The, all those pipes eventually need to be dug up, pulled out and replaced with new pipes. And the big costs there are all the effort to get the pipe out of the ground and put the new one in. The actual cost of the pipe if you're comparing, comparing a, a six inch pipe versus a 10 inch pipe, that cost is, is quite minimal in the overall scheme. And so having bigger pipes in there to serve more people in the same amount of area isn't a big increase in cost. And so his, his point was um, increased density reduces your infrastructure costs over time. And so multifamily like townhouses or, or apartments, those are the types of housing that will keep those infrastructure costs low over time. And so I think sometimes I hear in some of these public hearings, uh, people saying, oh, you know, if you put in those apartments, you're going to overwhelm our infrastructure. And the reality is that those types of developments are probably going to end up subsidizing the lower density single family neighborhoods because they are effectively covering the cost of their infrastructure infrastructure servicing over time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And, you know, I think there's, there's at rezoning, trying to make sure that growth pays for growth, right? So that um, there's sufficient um, development cost charges in place that there's community amenity contributions that make sense um, and that any upgrades that need to happen for a development to take place are paid for by the developer at that time. Um, and we're also trying to make sure that the fees and charges aren't so high that we're having a really negative effect on housing affordability. And so that's, that's the piece for, for a council when we set those policies around DCCs or community many contributions that we're being mindful that this gets passed on to the eventual homeowner. But over time, as you say, putting those people there helps reduce the maintenance costs and the replacement costs over time because we're spreading, you know, whatever that hundred meters of pipe um, over more taxpayers. So there, there's definitely um, a benefit to that in my mind. Um, and, and I want people to know that we are planning for the growth. Um, it's, it's not that we will find ourselves in a situation that infrastructure gets overwhelmed by the addition of people. Absolutely. Um, another common concern related to density that we hear in some of these conversations is that um, bringing in the density is going to consume our environmental or recreational assets. And uh, I, again, I, I can see where this concern comes from during the engagement that we completed with our official community plan process. 
two of the things that came out loud and clear were that people in Squamish really value the environment and they really value recreational activities and the infrastructure, the trail network, um, the places to go that, that we use for those. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about some of these developments as they relate to density is that we're not talking about um, development projects on undeveloped public lands. Um, we're talking about private lands often that have zoning for some type of development already. Uh, and um, I think some of the perception that, you know, allowing density is going to um, remove these environmental values or recreational values isn't really accurate because what we're talking about is areas that might become single family neighborhoods. Um, and if you were to look at the amount of land that gets consumed by a single family development, as opposed to a multifamily development, it's really significant in those single family developments. With multifamily, we can take the, the number of dwelling units and use a smaller amount of area for a, a number of housing units that um, can make the project profitable, but also can maintain some of the area around for environmental values or for recreational assets like trails and and um, and green space. So I, I think sometimes that the uh, the perception doesn't quite match the reality where we can really use those that density in the multifamily development to preserve more of these environmental and, and recreational values. It's it's a great point, Matt, and you know we know from. Uh, emerging climate science that that biodiversity is at risk and so people don't want us to cut down forests to just put in homes so to me you know that's one of the reasons taking that feedback we heard from the uh, official community plan engagement and putting in section nine of the ocp this idea of growth management principles um, and they're there for the community to read uh, and, and people should, um, and it really was to put a growth management boundary around Squamish. Um, when I first arrived in Squamish, it doesn't take you long to realize this community sprawled early and far, very quickly. Like there's a great distance to travel from Valley Cliff all the way to the end of, of Brackendale. So that's a lot of infrastructure to support and maintain and roads and, um, so, so we're not a very dense community and most of the homes, I think you told me this, like 46% of our, our stock is single family, um, yep. which is high compared to our neighbors in the corridor. So, um, so we put in the growth management boundary because um, if you look within that, we can actually develop on the lands within that boundary uh, up to a population of almost, I think it was 34,000 people without yeah, spreading right. into the, the forest stands that are, that are still standing out there. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, one, from a tax perspective that again, we're putting a few more people uh, inside the area, the footprint we already live on to help us pay to maintain and replace infrastructure over time. And two, that we're not sprawling into the recreational areas that, that we love before we absolutely need to. And, and I get that there's this really important balance between creating opportunities for builders in our community and the construction industry. Um, but I think that can happen uh, within the areas that are still available for growth. And there's still some large parcels of land here that are, um, that are going to get developed uh, that are within the growth management boundaries. So uh, to me, it strikes the right balance between saying, hey, let's, let's grow within our, our current footprint for the time being um, and help lower the cost of, of, of infrastructure for everyone over time. And then let's put in place some really good policies so that when we do need to expand beyond that growth management boundary, we're ready to do it with smart policy. And, and whether that's the wildfire, um, DPA or the steep slopes, because as soon as we go outside that growth management boundary, those are some big risks that we have. So, so to me, it, it, it gives us a bit of time to think about neighborhood development, think about the type of infrastructure, allow innovation around climate to catch up to where we want to go in terms of building neighborhoods of the future, um, develop our transit system a little bit better within our current footprint, get it to that 15 minute interval to make it convenient. So like, I think there's so much wonderful opportunity within our current footprint um, without 
taking away from the quality of life of our current citizens or those who will join us um, over the coming years. That to me is really important. And, and I think our, our community told us that in the official community plan engagement we did. Yeah, yeah they, they certainly did. Um, you know, speaking of, of uh, um, how, you know, expectations people have for, for you know, having a, a good lifestyle and, and a good neighborhood, um, one of the things that comes up over and over again when we're talking about uh, density or, or, or development in existing neighborhoods is concern around traffic. Um, a, a lot of, that's a, a, a comment that a lot of people make, um, that they're concerned that as new developments come in, especially into single family neighborhoods, that um, the increased density is going to lead to difficulty getting around the roads in their neighborhood. Um, and, and really we're talking about a transportation issue when we're getting into that traffic. And, you know, linking back to what we heard from Bronson at BC Transit, transportation and density are really interconnected. And particularly when we start thinking about transit, one of the things in our official community plan that came out was that we were really looking for um, ways to promote alternatives to single occupant vehicles. We want active transportation, we want um, transit options, and we, we want those to be more convenient, as Bronson said, as we talked about earlier, so that people can get from the places they live to the places they work. Um, and there's a bunch of benefits to that. It's a, it's a healthier way to live in terms of having active transportation. It's better for our climate goals. Um, but another piece is that, you know, right now we kind of have this expectation that at any time we can jump in a car and drive to wherever we want to go, whether it be the store or work and park our car and, and go do whatever we've gone there to do. Um, but that does lead to some parking issues. We have a lot of cars that then need to be um, stored during the day in all these different locations. And, you know, in a town like ours where we've got a constrained land base, um, as a planner, when I'm thinking about how we use land, I really am trying to make sure that we have land available for um, people to live it at. Um, so, so affordable housing or various forms of housing, or that we can use land for places for people to work so we can have local jobs and people don't have to commute. And anytime we start allocating more land towards parking, we're taking away from that land we can use from places for people to live or places for people to work. So, um, that, that transit uh, really does help alleviate some of those issues. It creates an alternative to having to have parking everywhere. Um, and so, you know, by, by focusing on the traffic, I think we're missing the fact that creating some density can allow us to support that transit and then create some alternatives to um, our current kind of expectation for how we get around town. Yeah, and probably we should have a whole other podcast series on parking because it is Absolutely. like- <laughs> That's a whole other topic. That is a whole other topic. And we could spend a lot of time today going, going into that topic and whether we need more parking or less parking. And there are fierce advocates on both sides, not only in Squamish, but in cities, all over the world. And there are some dramatic changes going on um, with parking in, in other parts of the world. So it's certainly something that I keep my eye on and I know council does too, but where I wanna go with this idea of traffic is that um, our sort of more established neighborhoods were designed at a time when the car was king. And, and when I arrived here, um, it was so interesting to me that there's all these neighborhoods and no sidewalks and and the idea that that you know kids didn't need sidewalks you know to get to school or or there weren't bike lanes everywhere and it, it's a really it's a very much a car oriented community that that stretches quite far and and so where we're at is that we're trying to now retrofit our neighborhoods for um more transit, more active transportation, more pedestrian friendly um, streetscapes. And, and that's certainly not cheap and it can't happen all at once. And so there is a relationship um, between uh, development and, um, and making that happen. So like I'll give an example from where I live. When I lived, uh, when I moved here, moved in, there weren't sidewalks all the way from my house to Brennan Park, but there are now. And, and I've lived here for eight years. So it's, it's gradually over time with the development that's happened um, uh, along, along my neighborhood streets. You know, now my kids can 
can get there safely on a, on a sidewalk, which, which I love. Um, the other thing that we designated in the official community plan, um, because we heard people say, you know, I know we're going to grow. Like I, I get it. The highway, you know, expansion really changed the accessibility of our community. So I can see that we're going to grow, but I don't want to lose that sense of a small town feel. And so I think that really pushed us in the direction of this idea of, of neighborhood nodes. So as we get bigger, as we add more people to Squamish, no, we're not going to recognize everyone we see at the post office or at Nestor or Save on Foods. Like, or, but, but we can start to have those relationships on a neighborhood level. And so the official community plan, as you know, designates key spots within each major, major neighborhood because what we want people to be able to do is be able to walk to meet a lot of their daily needs. Like, ooh, ran out of milk. I would love it that people don't have to get in their car. They can send their 10 year old, you know, down the street, you know, go get me some milk. And they can do that safely um, and conveniently. Uh, without getting in a car. So I think this sort of these little commercial nodes, places to meet up, have some of your daily needs met right within your neighborhood, whether it's Brackendale or the Highlands or Valley Cliff. And we can see those, right? Like we have that little pod in Brackendale, um, two pods actually around Eagle Run and then around the general store and Valley Cliff has one. Um, I know in my own neighborhood in North Yards, you know, we just did a rezoning that establishes an, a neighborhood node uh, to the east of me. So that will be exciting as that develops. So I think this idea of our relationship with the car needs to change. And, and while, you know, uh, I also think generally that people here just need to change their driving habits. So, um, you know, our engineers are always working on better road design and more bike friendly, pedestrian friendly road design. And People here just need to slow down and, and recognize that the same people that are complaining about parking or the speed on streets are the people that are probably doing 55 instead of 50 or, or 40 through a school zone. Like we all have to take responsibility for, for that. And I get great pleasure right now of actually driving the speed limit wherever I go and slowing people down behind me. It's a really effective way to do it just takes a few people to drive the actual speed limit and you make everyone else behind you drive the actual speed limit. And, and this is a really fun thing for people to do in the school zones from 7.30 in the morning till 7.30 at night is to make people drive 30 kilometers an hour. And we all have the power to do that. So I'm empowering anyone who listens to this to just drive the speed limit and we will slow a lot of people down just through our own actions. So. So anyway, um, and one of the great places you'll see this idea of a neighborhood node build out very quickly is downtown because that's where we've really added the most density. And that is like an example of, of a beautiful walkable neighborhood, shops, services, recreation. I mean, my goodness, the development on the Mamcom Blind Channel, there's a little wharf down there. So if you have a kayak or a sup, you can now, you know, leave your condo and carry it down and put it in on the Malcolm line channel, go for a paddle from your back door. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The future of downtown is really amenity rich. Yeah. Like there, it's just going to get better and better for those guys downtown, which is really fantastic. But I do think those neighborhood nodes are also really appealing. And the idea of being able to wander out, you know, there's the go get your, you know, your thing of milk or some eggs. That's great. But I think even probably more exciting in my mind is like the, you know, like a little vibrant area where there's a couple restaurants and a cafe, right? That becomes a bit of a meeting point, a social point. Um, it adds richness without having to jump in the car and drive away. Or if you're in one of the many places that you can bike from your home, you know, you can grab something on the way out or on the way back if you're going on a ride um, on, on our trail network. So yeah, th there's a lot of appeal of that neighborhood node. And I, I think, again, as part of the density Piece. We're working towards that and it just takes time. It's an iterative process where we, we get further and further along that road. You often hear people refer to, maybe you've referred to it, Squamish as this, is like we're in our awkward teenage years. Yeah, absolutely. Like we were one thing and we're becoming something else, but there's this whole time period where it's, it's evolving and it's not there yet. Yeah. And it's, it's on a bunch of different fronts, but the, the, some of the stuff we're talking about now, like transportation is, is, is very much in that category. Yeah. Um, one of the concerns in the community, 
around restricting single family units. And I think this is one that we hear quite passionately um, in some of these conversations uh, is that restricting single family units or shifting our um, approach for, for how new land is used, not so much restricting single family, because I think there's, there's a place for single family in, in new developments, but um, you know, we're looking to include more variety, more diversity of housing forms, which means not all of it will be single family. And so one of the concerns we hear is that by, you know, increasing some forms, but reducing the single family proportion, that that's going to drive up the prices of single family units and make them affordable, unaffordable, that uh, those choices to try and support townhouses or, or plexes in our in our new areas or in redevelopment is really going to make it more expensive for people who want to get into a single family home. Um, What's your take on that? How does density impact affordability? You know, Matt, like from the minute I was elected on the council in 2014, I continue my learning in this regard and listen hard to the debates on both sides of this, that, you know, supply is the answer. Just create more supply, more supply, more supply, um, and the price will come down. Uh, and then other people on the other side of the debate that are like, we, we can't keep up in terms of just building, just building single families. So I want people to hear, I have nothing against a single family home and, and I'm perfectly happy for it to appear in our, in our sub area planning. But if we build only single family homes, and this is the other side of the argument, is that we can't keep up with the infrastructure costs to service those lower density neighborhoods. We can't put effective transit in there um, because we don't have the tax base to support a 15 minute service the environmental cost, um, and then the loss of opportunity to build affordable homes is lost um, because it's very difficult to build a uh, affordable single family home um, and protect it in, in perpetuity. There are ways to do it, but, but by just giving over land to a single family home development, we miss out on those. So there's a couple of things that I think about when I think about, you know, what if we just opened up supply and just provided more and more land for this type of housing? So one, I think the demand is insatiable. Like we will never fill it up. It's like feeding a teenager. They'll, they'll just keep eating uh, if there's food around. And I feel like that's the same. We, we sit, you know, a convenient 45 minutes from a major metropolitan area uh, where housing is, um, well, I would say our housing is almost as expensive as there now, but yeah, um, people like the lifestyle up here. And we've seen that through the pandemic, our, our single family home demand has increased as people are like, why am I in the city when I could be working from home up in Squamish and biking from my backyard or paddle boarding or what have you. So um, I don't think we ever meet the demand. Urbanism is a thing. We'll have more people over time migrating towards cities um, population increase. And, and I think that we won't be able to keep up. It doesn't matter how much land I, I give over. And, and I'm not sure it would drop the prices substantially. I think the demand would outstrip supply. I think also developers are really good at um, putting homes onto the market at a pace that makes sure they get the best possible price. Like I haven't seen anyone market you know, all the homes all at once. They do it in phases for that purpose is to make sure the demand is, is always higher than the supply and so that it is a seller's market. So, you know, can't get away from that. Like I hear developers telling me supply, supply, supply. And I, I say back to them, well, I don't see you putting 200 homes on the market at, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't do that to drop the price. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it is, I think a bit of a catch 22, but what I don't want to see us do is, um, is miss out on the opportunity to build complete neighborhoods with neighborhood nodes where people can gather with parks, with childcare, with, you know, daily amenities close by. Um, and, you know, putting some single family lots in that mix, I think is a, is a great idea, but also duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, row houses. That's a form of housing that we haven't even explored, right? Is the ownership in, um, in row houses rather than strata. Um, like there's so many things we could be doing that we're not doing yet. 
Um, uh, we're starting to see cottage clusters coming into the mix, which is fantastic, like a smaller form of housing, but it's still, you know, your four walls. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity um, uh, without, without sacrificing some of the things that people care about, which is like ground oriented living and a connection to a yard or a space, right? Yeah, you know, one thing I think about in this conversation is that really through the official community plan and that engagement process, people told us that they wanted us to maintain the green space which is why we came up with a growth management boundary. We're trying to constrain how much land we consume because we want to preserve the environment. We want to cons conserve our, our recreation assets or trail network. We don't want to sprawl. And so once you do that, there is a certain amount of land that we want to use for housing. And I, just as you're saying, I, we could do a, a Hail Mary pass and say, let's, let's chop it all up into single family and try and sell that and see if we can bring down the, the housing values for single family homes. But we're, we're next to 2 million, 2.5 million people in the lower mainland. Uh, a lot of them are looking for, for opportunities to move to a place like Squamish. Um, and if we consume all that land, uh, using it to create single family, maybe we change the price just a bit, right? And so instead of being 1.8 million, it's maybe one point, maybe we can bring down the price a little bit, but that price change isn't gonna be so much that it's gonna make the average family in Squamish able to purchase those homes. The price is so high already. And in doing that, we will consume all our land that we could use to create more affordable housing through other housing products, as you're saying. And I think that's really the key that we we need to start shifting our expectations that those, those single family homes are very expensive and it's gonna be very hard for a lot of people to get them. And if we wanna create housing that's more expensive or less expensive, we need to create housing forms that are smaller, that share space, um, but still provide a good lifestyle and a great community. And I think one thing to talk about, which you talked about briefly, is the proportion of single family homes in Squamish. Single detached makes up 46% of occupied dwelling units or 44% if you look at all the dwelling units in our community. And, and that's really high for the corridor. In Pemberton, 30% of all dwelling units are single detached. And in Whistler, 13% are single detached. Right. That's, that's amazing to me. It's amazing. And, and that's out of the 2016 census. Um, it means that there's a lot of space for us to create multifamily and still have a healthy population of single family units in our community. Um, we, we can create multifamily for a long time and still have quite a high proportion um, for, for the community we're in. Um, so I think when I, when I look at it that, in that way, I feel like we've got to be really strategic about how we use these remaining lands. If we want to hang on to our, our green space around our community, then we really have to try and create diversity and variety of housing forms in the land that remains to be developed. Yeah. And you know what, for me, Matt, like people talk about, you know, is, is Squamish going to be a bedroom community of the lower mainland? Is it already a bedroom community of the lower? I don't think it's a bedroom community of the lower mainland. I think it has its own identity and its sense of place still. Um, but we need to protect that, which means we need to have land available for jobs as well as for people to live in, which you already talked about. Um, but also we need to be able to have people live here that provide all of the things we need, right? So that new teachers can start their careers here, paramedics, firefighters, police officers, mechanics, people that, you know, through this pandemic, we realized are essential workers um, and can't we can't live without them. They need to be able to afford homes here. And so my worry is if we focus too much on sort of this idea that single family is the be all and end all is that we miss the opportunity to keep essential workers here. You know, nurses, teachers, um, those folks have to be able to see that they can, you know, our young folks could go away, get an education, come back, and, and find a home here and raise their family here. And it, it may not be a single family home, but it's a great home in a great neighborhood with a ton of amenities and great transit um, and, and places to meet up with your neighbors and, and connect. So I think I think about that too, is making sure that people stay here that, that really run this town. It's not me, like I could leave, no one's gonna miss me, but, <laughs> but we are gonna miss those folks that, that uh, keep our town going. And, and that goes for the folks that work at the district, right? Like our 
public work staff and our rec services staff. Like those are the people. We don't want them commuting from from somewhere else. They need to be able to live here and and work here. So yeah, that's very much on my mind. Yeah, yeah, and families. Yeah, families that are trying to raise children have to pay childcare costs, and our kids. Uh, you know, my kids. Like if they want to move into this market. Um, if it's all single family homes that cost $2 million, that's a pretty tough barrier to entry yeah. to, to keep youth around. Um, so I, I think that's a great transition. Um, we've talked about, about a lot of the aspects related to density and livability and some of the tensions that exist, but on a more personal level, let's talk a bit about our own experiences and how they relate to housing. Um, for you, what's your relationship to single family homes and multifamily housing? Oh, you know, I think I, I grew up in single family homes. Um, and uh, I think in my head, that was always sort of where I was going, right? Like once I had a family, I'd be in a single family home. And then um, I spent a few years in Vancouver after, we, you know, Sean and I were just married and we had this amazing little apartment uh, right near Granville Island. And we we didn't own a car. We walked to everything um, or took the bus or rode our bikes. And it was awesome. Um, we eventually did buy a car because I got a job quite far away from where I lived, which wasn't ideal. But um, still, I, a few days a week, I would try and bike out there. But in, in 2006, we moved um, down to Australia. We moved to Melbourne, which is a huge city, three and a half million people. Um, we still don't have kids yet. But uh, suddenly, um, you know, we were inner city um, and uh, living in a neighborhood called North Melbourne, which is interesting. Now I live in North Yard, so there might be like a theme <laughs> in my head. Um, Going north. But, uh, but what, something that Melbourne's done really, really well in, in some of its um, inner uh, suburbs is that they kept their little high street, right? So created and maintained these walkable neighborhoods. Um, so there's, there's townhomes, there's row houses, there's a few single family homes in the mix. There's a few apartment buildings, but I could walk to a little grocery store. Like I couldn't do my big shops there. I could walk to this, the Vic market. So a farmer's market, um, I had my favorite coffee shop. The pharmacy was there. Um, it was all within walking distance. So when I walked into, um, the coffee shop, they would see me, you know, after a few months and they would start making my coffee without having to order. Nice. Um, That's great. You know, when I went into the pharmacy, they knew my name they knew my kids, you know, as they were coming along and um, they would ask me stuff, you know, like, oh, how's your daughter, you know, is your daughter over her ear infection or, you know, you know, is she walking yet? And all those sorts of things, like people have a sense of that you belong there. You were part of that neighborhood. You were a local and you were a regular. Um, and, uh, and, and that happened in both the neighborhoods we lived in while we were in Melbourne. And so when we, we came to Squamish, um, we moved back to Canada. Um, we live in a multifamily development. And one of the things I love about it is that one, I don't have to do yard work, um, but two, I have a neighborhood, right? And I have a sense of belonging and people looking out for each other. Um, I love that I can now walk to a few really important things like beer and bread and, and some of the activities <laughs> that, that uh, my family loves to do. Um, we're really close to the river so we can feel like we're in nature very quickly. Um, you know, my partner can, can mountain bike from the door to wherever Jerry wants to get to. So it's that sense, like, so now I don't really aspire to that single family home. I aspire to livable and um, green space, like those things are important to me. It's not having the, the fence and, and my own yard. Um, but do I feel connected to my neighbors? Can I walk or access services close to me in a really easy way? Do I feel part of a neighborhood? And, and so I think it's, it, you know, Melbourne really helped me see that I didn't need to live in a single family home to feel like I had the space I needed to raise my family and, and be part of civic life. Like it was, it was a really wonderful experience. So I think that's what I imagine 
for Squamish in the future is just amazing neighborhoods with these services close by and that deep sense of community connection with people in your in your neighborhood and the the shopkeepers that will see you as a regular and and know things about you and and um and welcome you uh so i think that kind of for me is is where i sit on the whole spectrum what about you yeah and i uh, yeah. Oh, just before that, I think um, one of the things that you're speaking to addresses something I hear about Squamish on occasion. People talk about how, you know, Squamish is great, but actually you got to drive everywhere. And I think that speaks to these neighborhoods that don't have services. Um, and I think you're highlighting something that you lose when those neighborhoods don't have that that hub that has somewhere you can go to, to run into people or um, fill some of your needs or have a shop that recognizes you. We, we, we lose that by not having that density. And, and I think that's something that a lot of these policies are trying to address. But um, it, for me, um, you know, I, I moved to Squamish six years ago. Uh, and when, when we came here, we were pretty keen to purchase a home. We, we thought we'd be staying um, for the long haul. And when we started looking around the community to try and decide what part of town we, we wanted to live in, we settled on a couple areas, primarily because of the access to the trail network. I, I really wanted to have that proximity, which I think you hear a lot of. Absolutely. Um, pe people want to be close to trails. It's one of our like great assets here. We have these, these neighborhoods where you, you get on your bike and literally like within a couple minutes, I'm on world-class trail trails to, to bike around on. So, so, you know, we identified some places we wanted to live, but one of the things that I was struck by when I looked at the housing in those areas was that there wasn't housing variety in there, housing diversity. There were really, there were single family neighborhoods. And so ultimately um, we purchased a, a single family home. That was the choice that was available for these places. And, and I noticed it's interesting. Some of the things that you've noted are some of the things that I see as, as downsides. Like I, I hate doing yard work and, and my neighbors <laughs> probably notice it, but uh, um, I'm not, I like, I would like to go out on a walk with my kids or I would like to go into the mountains or I'd like to get on my bike. Yet doing work on the yard is not one of those high priority items for me. And so, um, you know, the idea of a, a, a strata where that's taken care of and you're sharing the cost of that, that really appeals to me. Um, and then another piece um, that I think about a lot, and maybe it's my land use kind of planner hat um, coming through, but I look at the backyards um, of the my, my home and the, my adjacent neighbors, and I see all these like all this green space that's cut up into these tiny little squares that really like if I go out and take a look, there's almost nobody out there. Occasionally there's kids in my, you know, we'll go out and jump on the trampoline and do that kind of thing. But the use is really low. I go to some other friends places like some friends that live in Amalpath or, or in Shannon Estates where they have these large green spaces that have either, you know, trails or, or some kind of infrastructure, a, a playground that activate, activates that area. And the kids can run out the back door into that space and have all their buddies out there in this great green space that they're interacting with. The parents can hang out there and chit chat while the, the kids are playing, or maybe the kids are out there on their own. Like that really appeals to me. And I see our division of that space into these private little spaces really inefficient and, and um, a really poor use of, of that space. And so I think, oh man, could we just blow out these these fences and like make this one giant space with somebody to come and cut that grass and, and put a playground in there. That just sounds fantastic. Right. Maybe um, you should pitch this idea to your neighbors, Matt. Yeah. Don't, don't go and start cutting down over. their fences without their permission. <laughs> I have a feeling it might fly. I might fly, not fly yeah. quite yet. But um but so I, I feel like um uh we should make sure that all these different parts of our community have these various forms of housing in. And I think it, I think people are really used to um, expecting that specific neighborhoods have a specific character and, and are, for example, a single family neighborhood. Yeah. I think people get have gotten attached to that and used to that. But I think there's actually actually quite an equity issue when you think about that, that um, you know, there are people that are never going to put the money into a house. Maybe they can't, or maybe they choose not to, but for them to be excluded from a part of our community because of that cost or the, those choices isn't equitable. Um, and so I think we, we, we owe it to our community to have a variety of options throughout the entire community. And then when I think about my kids, I would love them to be able to live as close to the trails as I live mm -hmm. when they decide to live somewhere. But with the way housing prices are going in comparison to wages, that could be pretty hard for a lot of our kids. And do we, do we want to have what we want, like the, you know, a single family neighborhood, for example, for those people that want that at the cost of our children, being able to have 
um, an option to live in in whatever neighborhood they want. I think there's a, there's an equity issue there as well, and intergenerational. And so I think we've we've got to start planning for that and make some choices um, to provide that kind of diversity. Yeah, I think it's such an important question for our community to ask itself: is is that idea of equity and who gets to live where and at what age, and at what income? And it, I guess people might differ on that philosophically, but I think if if you've spent most of your life in a neighborhood that you love just because you retire or now you're on a, a fixed income or, or a pension, why do you have to move? Yeah, totally. Why can't you get a, a great little cottage or, or a little apartment in the neighborhood that you love and where you have connection and where you have um, community? Why should it force you to move? Or, you know, or if you, you have a career shift and your income's dropped, but you still want to stay in your community, but you need to downsize, you know, why should we, force you to move to a community again where you don't have connection and contacts but why not say yeah for a few years i'm gonna i'm gonna live in this condo until uh, i get back up on my feet or or in this townhouse or you know i i think we should look at it as all forms of housing are great forms of housing um there's not one that's better what we need to create is livable and sustainable neighborhoods and communities um, and, and that to me is, is the bigger picture, is people being outside, being with others, being in community, pandemic notwithstanding, um, right? So- um, Yeah, for sure. It, it's that big picture uh, of, of how, what, what creates a great community. And I, I hope that that conversation with our community continues um, uh, at every opportunity. It's, it's such a fascinating conversation to have. Absolutely. One thing that that actually just made me think of was that when you're talking about living in a neighborhood over your lifespan through different phases of your life, um, when you layer that on with the that comment you you mentioned earlier, where people wanted to not lose that small town vibe mm -hmm. that Squamish had, those neighborhood nodes become more important because that becomes that area where you totally. create within the bigger community your your connections to a group of people that you live around, and so if you can't maintain your your place in a neighborhood because the housing isn't available to suit your your stage of life then you aren't going to maintain that small town feel you're going to get you're going to end up in another place which which you don't have the connections to over time so um it, it again creates that importance for having that density to support those nodes to support that commercial to support that gathering space um and those variety of housing forms over time absolutely this is this has been a really interesting conversation Matt, and you know, I know it's not the end of it either. Uh, hopefully what we've done is stimulate some thinking out there. And I, and I know the feedback will keep coming to us on council and to you as staff. Um, but I hope at least our conversation has helped to broaden people's thinking on this topic. Um, and away from the density is just always bad or density is always good. I, I know there's trade-offs for sure um, for Absolutely. people on both sides of, of this um, discussion. Um, but anyway, hopefully we've helped to, to at least expand people's thinking on this topic. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a great point to uh, end the conversation for now. All right. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thank you, Mayor Elliott. Mm -hmm.